Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Brought to you by the fine folk at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we have the company of not only one of Australia's most gifted endurance athletes, but also one of its fiercest competitors. Emma Carney is a dual world triathlon champion who hauled in 19 World Cup wins in a medal-laden career that saw her earn world number one status and compete in a second sport at world championship level in athletics. Emma's a Sport Australia Hall of Fame inductee who also sits in the International Triathlon Union and Triathlon Australia Halls of Fame. But she's also been touched by tragedy, brutal personal setbacks, and now lives with the legacy of a ferocious appetite for hard training. Emma Carney, welcome, and thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Quite an introduction. What are we keep? What are we keeping you from doing this afternoon? <laughs> um, what do I do for work? I coach, do some um, development work with World Triathlon, and um, yeah, I'm a mum. So that's enough. That's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that is a full plate. Listen, we, we get all sorts of sports men and sports women on this program from, you know, all different backgrounds who've gone on to do amazing things and confront all sorts of challenges. But some of which I t- touched on off the top, I've got to say, yours is a hamburger with a lot. Does it feel like a hamburger with a lot, you know, all these years post-career? With regard to what I went through or Just with regard to my your achieve Your achievements, what you went through, the successes, the setbacks, the the stuff away from all of that, does it feel like a, a full life to this point? It, it does and it doesn't. Um, and I think that's the, I don't know, the problem or the um, part of being an elite athlete is that you're never actually happy with what you achieved. You could always have done more. And um, I definitely feel like I could have done more if I hadn't had some of the setbacks. Mm. And we'll get we'll get to those a little bit later on in the show. But you're coaching now, so you get to see and guide, or help guide, I guess, the next next generation of talent. Hopefully, um, coaching is a different different sort of ball game. Um, yeah, when I first started coaching, I assumed athletes had the approach that I had, and I can say not many do. <laughs> mm, yeah. But is that mm. yeah? And how do you? Is that been a wrestle for you over time? And have you got better at that? Yeah, definitely. It's um, you know, initially when I first retired, um, I was doing some corporate sort of bike rides, and it didn't take me probably took me about three weeks before I had some of the men in tears. So mm. um, I've had to adjust my approach, and yeah, younger athletes, um, it's it's very different now to when I was racing for sure. Mm, mm. So you were known, uh, as what you're alluding to, as a ferocious competitor, I, I guess a self-driven trainaholic and someone with enormous mental strength. But actually, one of the mantras, Emma, that you live by caught my eye, and I, I think I'm quoting you here, success is hating to lose, not loving to win. Can you elaborate yeah. on that? Yeah, I mean, it was more um, a hatred of losing. I didn't, I don't know, from a very young age, I wanted to be a class athlete and um, you know just followed a lot of Australian sports and a a lot of Australian um, legends and just didn't want to 
I suppose, let the country down and letting the country down with my job as a sports person was um, if I didn't win. So it was about not, um, I just didn't want to lose. Yeah, it's funny, that, but that was your motivation, correct? So what of those who perhaps say now, or, or then even, that you have to celebrate the wins along the way? Can you not be powered by what winning feels like as opposed to what losing feels like? Um, you can. And, I mean, there's, there's so many different ways, and it's such a rabbit warren of approaches in sport and how people how people's mind works. So you can train to a certain thing and you can follow those theories and all that um, sort of processes and you get the outcome. Mm. But how someone thinks and how someone processes things is completely different to the next person. Um, So you can never take that blanket approach, I don't think. Um, But hating to lose is a real key to being successful in sport. So those lonely hours for you training, whether it be in the pool or on the bike or whatever it was, were you driven though more by the fear or, or the, I guess the despising of losing as opposed to visualising the, the gold medal around your neck? Yeah, I didn't want to screw up. But I mean, I mean at the same time, I also did have quite advanced visualisation skills. I remember, um, you know, as triathlon was sort of developing into an AIS sort of um, on the AIS program. Um, we were sent up there and I had to speak to a, you know, physiologist, sports psychologist, um, go and see the biomechanists and um, the sports psychologist said to me, okay, Emma, what do you do before a race? And I just said, I see it. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I, I see I see the success. I see it. It's very visual. I go over the course and I'll see myself cornering well. I'll see me running well. Um, you know, I'll see a clean start. Mm. Um, and they said, oh, that's very advanced. How do you learn that? I said, that's what I've done for as long as I can remember. So it's some skills you have to work on and some skills you already have. Um, and I think that's the key to knowing what you do have and don't have um, when you're working as a coach that makes sense yeah yeah so just on that so two of your most famous wins obviously 94 triathlon worlds in wellington and then 97 in perth which we'll get to in a bit more detail later did you have that visualization technique sharpened after winning so it was almost winning gave you that power of uh, to visualize or you had it beforehand well i mean you look at my career and everyone says oh you know she took up triathlon 18 months later she was a world champion Mm. um but you know i started running at you know, Wesley College in grade three. So I'd been running since I was about eight or nine. Yeah. So I really had 12 years already behind me of learning to race um, and, you know, learning to hate to lose. And I'd done Athletics Victoria events all the way through um, National Athletics Australia, um, you know, national championships. So I still had all that 10 years of learning before I actually won the world title. So that was already sort of there. Yep. And and just on this as well, so in endurance sport in particular, Emma, so this is, I reckon, from elite level all the way down to the weekend warrior sort of competitions and stuff at the weekend, it fascinates me how the mind gives before the body in, in some instances. Does that ring true to you? And, and how do you or how did you try to combat that? Yeah, the mind's huge. Um, and I underestimated when I was an athlete 
how strong my mind was. I actually thought that that's what everyone did. They lined up to race and they expected to win. I didn't realise that people lined up to race and didn't think they would win until I coached. Because I, you know, I'd be coaching an athlete and I'd say, okay, you know, here we are, it's um, pre-race, it's going to warm up and they'd get on the line and then say something like, oh, what about, I don't think I'll do well today. And I was <laughs> speechless. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Just didn't know. So I had to, you know, send athletes off to go and speak to experts because I don't understand that mindset. Is that a, a self-preservation um, technique almost maybe? If I, if I don't get my hopes up, I won't get hurt at the other end. I don't know, but then what's the point? Mm. Well, then anything's, you know, anything's a bonus, I suppose. Yeah, but if if you want to be a part of Australian sport, you have to have more respect yeah. for Australian sport and results, and um, it's just not acceptable. Yeah, you know, it's um, maybe I don't know. My family's from the north of England; and they're all mad up there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but there's it. It just wasn't acceptable and weak. I don't think we say that these days. You know, weak or soft. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I had coaches tell me, Carney, you're not tough enough to be a world champion. And I just think, rather than think, oh, God, you know, here we go, I think, oh, I hope they're wrong. Yeah. but, but I you, wouldn't accept it. But you can't say that anymore, as you said, with your coaching. You have to, you know, what do you do? Dance around it, beat around it, sugarcoat it a bit. Um, no, I've told athletes that I no longer see the point in working with them because um, they're behavior is not aligned with what they tell me they want to achieve. So I'm very honest with them. Mm. Um, I'll support an athlete 100%, um, but if they're not showing the commitment and um, the work ethic and the requirement, um, I think that is is what's missing from athlete well-being now is when athletes aren't told, hey, you're not going to achieve anything doing this and you're actually going to waste 15 years of your life you should actually go and get a job that's going to pay you so you've actually got super at the end of your um, you know, working life. Mm. That's athlete well-being. You're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers, a family-owned business since 1934. So Emma always told friends she would rather die than lose a race. Well, she nearly <laughs> died while sitting still. That life-changing moment is up next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Australian triathlon legend Emma Carney is our guest today. So, Emma, skip forward a bit here. 2004, you'd built a heck of a resume by this stage, and through hard work and that uncompromising dedication, You'd really taken the sport of triathlon to new levels of speed, power, athleticism, but the full stop was about to be put on that out of nowhere. So Edmonton, Canada, July 04, and you're leaping out of a team bus with, with what? Your heart absolutely racing. Uh, a heart rate of 248. 248. <laughs> oh, that's insane. Oh, yeah. You've skipped a few years, but... um... No, we'll come back. We'll come back. But I just want to zero in on this this moment for a minute. So 2.48, and you actually told the team physio, I think you thought you were going to die, and you better get help quick. 
Yeah, I'd been doing a swim session uh, a couple of days before, um, you know, World Cup and major event, and felt this weakness that I've sort of been feeling over the preceding six years, and it was followed by a racing of my heart. Um, I put it down. I thought, oh God, now I'm having a panic attack, or you know, I've gone completely soft. But um, what I was actually doing was uh, approaching cardiac arrest. So I wasn't in cardiac arrest, but I was approaching it. I was in um, ventricular tachycardia where your heart basically, you basically your heart has plumbing problems, which is heart attack or electrical problems, which is cardiac arrest. Um, athletes quite often develop the electrical problems, the cardiac arrest and sudden death, start off with a bad rhythm. And then the heart can't sustain it and goes into ventricular fibrillation where it's um, four minutes later, you're dead. Mm. So it, it wasn't a good scenario. So what was good was that the ambulance came in two minutes, which is unbelievably <laughs> fortunate for you. And you were willing yourself to stay awake. So the heart rate of 248 and it had been racing for more than an hour, hadn't it? You had a pool session what early in the afternoon? Well, I'd just finished the swim session. Um, I felt the arrhythmia come on and forced myself to finish because, you know, it's off not to finish the session. Um, got out of the pool, didn't get any better. Um, got on the team bus to go back to the hotel and the team bus sitting in a chair and the racing heart, because the heart's a muscle, it felt like it was tightening my whole chest and upper body. So I got out of the bus at a set of lights and... Um, just got off. Got off. Well, I, I needed to get some air. Um, good old triathlon Australia drove the bus off. Um, but fortunately, the physio came out and um, standing outside, I'd suddenly realised I couldn't breathe any better. And fortunately, he got out and um, he was, you know, this is the day before mobile phones. or Not everyone had them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I said... He was having a bit of a whinge, didn't know where we were. And I said, look, you're going to have to get me help because I worked out if I started to panic or worry on top of the problems I was having with breathing and standing up, I didn't, I wasn't convinced that I could survive both. So I had to put it onto him. Um, so fortunately he ran off and initially he got a cab and the cabbie called an ambulance and we're about two minutes away from the hospital. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, the ambulance, I, I was staggered by this. So it, am I right to say in the ambulance they actually defibrillated you while you were conscious? I, I can't believe this. Yeah, um, I wrote about this in my autobiography. So my cardiologist can't believe this either. I was basically put on the, you know, in the back of the ambulance and they cut your shirt and they cut your bra and you're sitting there and they put pads on your chest and they took my heart rate and they said, can you feel this? And, and I said, well, what are you doing? And they were flicking my feet and they said, can you feel that? And I said, no, have you started? And so they came to the conclusion that my body was already shutting down from the peripherals in. So they said to me, we're going to have to give you a shock. And I remember thinking, oh, what are they talking about? And then I heard them flick a switch and everyone stepped back. And I went, oh, no. Anyway, they shot 250 joules through me Um and like in the movies, you do come off the bed, I can confirm that, and you land back really heavily, um, and it really, really hurts. So what, you, um, what I can't, what, <laughs> this, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. What, what, can you compare it to anything? 
Yeah, I would say it's, I would imagine it's like being hit by a truck, but there's no splatter, but there's also immediate calm. So if you imagine your heart wow. is racing in your chest, it's like a panic, you know, like an eye twitch, but it's your heart. So everything's hard to breathe, to see, to stand up. Everything's hard. And then so someone whacks you in the chest, like so hard that you, you, you're sure you're dead, but then you land and everything's peaceful. Wow. Um, so my reaction was just to start ripping pads off and telling people to <laughs> calm the, you know what, down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'll, so I'll skip forward again here. I'm pretty good at that. But ultimately, what were you diagnosed with? So um, ultimately, and it's a complicated process, um, diagnosing an athlete because the heart's too big, too slow, uh, works like a diesel engine, um, all that sort of stuff. I was... Um, diagnosed with right ventricular cardiomyopathy, which is basically a patch of scar tissue in the right side of the um, heart, the right ventricle. And until I had turned up, it had turned up in elite male European cyclists. <laughs> yeah. So I was the first actually diagnosed. You know, my cardiologist wrote a number of papers on it. So so what did it mean for you though, Emma? Because it was pretty drastic, wasn't it? I think you were told, you know, not only were your international triathlon days done, but pretty much exercise in general. Yeah, I was told um that was it. No more exercise. Um racing's done. Um gonna put a defibrillator in just to make sure that if it you know, if I approach those cardiac arrhythmias, um there's a backup. Like a seal um, like a ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I can get a shock from the device. Um, what's the, what's the, what's yeah. the heart rate have to get to, to, to trigger the device? Um, around 160. It's not a lot, is it? For someone. Well, it, it kind of depends because I've got a low resting heart rate and that's becoming a problem now as I age. So I've got brachycardia, which is too slow and tachycardia, which is too high. Oh. So my poor cardiologist, he's dealing with both. Yeah, but for the purposes of for the purposes, of, yeah, you'll set him off into retirement. But for the purposes of racing in two thousand and four, I mean, you're going north of one hundred and sixty, obviously. So th- that was yeah, the, yeah. When I, yeah. When I was tested um, up at the AIS, my max heart rate was about one seventy six. Right. So the whole scale for me was down because my resting heart rate was around was below thirty, twenty eight, twenty nine, thirty. Um which is kind of odd. But then when they looked at my heart, they said, well, this is a big, big heart with a sloppy right side. That's an amazing <laughs> resting heart rate. So you've mentioned him a couple of times, your cardiologist. That's Professor yep. Richard Harper. So now he said that you damaged your heart from repeated overtraining, I think he called it. So, you know, repeatedly 10 to 16 tries a year and you had an extremely rigorous training program. I'd imagine that's very tough for you to hear, Emma, maybe even to accept at the time. Did you or do you have any level of regret and how hard has it been to overcome that if you did? Um, I, it's, I mean, it's hard to say you've, you've got regret. And I also I should also mention that I've got two cardiologists. Um, right, sorry. <laughs> Professor Harper is... Um, He's the sort of overseer, and I've got an electrophysiologist, so the electrician, Jeff Allison. Mm. Um, so poor old Jeff has to deal with me more frequently now. Right. Um, but, yeah, sure, it is 
it is a cost. Um, but a necessary one, perhaps. I mean... Well, I mean, they do think that perhaps in 1996 I picked up a virus, a chest infection, and I raced worlds, raced like a bag of rubbish and came second, and um, they tested my lung function after that, and I was on like 30% lung function, and they said at the time, you know, you've got to be really careful doing things like that because you could damage your heart. Now, you could sort of track back that I was never as brilliant as I was mm. before, that time, um, but I mean, '97, I won worlds. Was world number one, and you just don't really think about it when you're racing. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, like my sporting career, I never would have imagined I'd get into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, and that's to me, if I've shortened my life, and it's probably a really, really bad thing to say. If I've shortened my life, I've shortened my life, but at least I gave it a crack, you know. Yeah, no, I can, I can, hey, I can, I can, look, hard for me, who, who, am I to, who am I to relate to that? But I mean, yeah, it's the old quality over quantity, I suppose, and yeah, it's simplest. I mean, yeah, I mean, I might have cut off 15, 20 years of my life, but um, at least I'll be known for someone that gave it a red hot go. All right, um, this is getting too dark for my liking, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna lighten the mood here. We're with triathlon superstar Emma Carney on this is your journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. Let's rewind to happier times, and we'll detail Emma's incredible <laughs> achievements after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. Today's guest, two-time world triathlon champ, three-time world number one, and nine-time Australian champ, Emma Carney. Emma, yours was a trailblazing career, but also one that exploded relatively quickly. So let's piece it together Born in England in 1971, you moved to Australia with your parents, David and Sheila. I mean, your mum was meant to be here all along with a name like that. Your, uh, your older sister, Jane, younger sister, Claire. H- how old were you when you moved down under? Uh, two and a half. Two and a oh, half. Was it? Oh, it was the year that um, Cyclone Tracy wiped Darwin off the map. That's how you we remember? Were diverted. Yeah, we are diverted by the... Cyclone. And you thought, you probably thought your mum and dad, anyway, <laughs> let's divert fully and go home. Um, where, where did you settle in the end? Uh, down in Melbourne. We lived in a um, hotel for six months just at the end of the Tamarine Freeway. Right. That would have been an interesting, interesting six months. Not that you remember a lot yeah. of it. Yeah. No, I do remember. I do remember being really hot. It was January, always hot. I never, I just thought this place that we've come to just always seemed to be hot. Um, you know, being poms, mum and dad would see a nice sunny day, open the windows and, you know, by two o'clock in the afternoon we're all dead in the house. Um, <laughs> I also remember a really funny thing that in Australia was that I couldn't enjoy ice cream. It, I had to be really quick, otherwise it melted. Um <laughs> So that was quite devastating, that, the two devastating things when we first moved here. That's a pure childhood memory, that one. So yeah. running, that's your first love. But when did you realise you had a gift when it came to endurance 
and the appetite for it as well. What sort of age do you think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm born with something here? Uh, I was really fortunate that Dad worked at Adidas and then he was at Nike and I was exposed to professional athletes, you know, turning up to his office, picking up gear and then I'd see him on TV. Um, and it was something that really intrigued me. And then I was also very fortunate that I went to a good school in Melbourne that had a really strong sport program and started competing and, um, you know, playing in sport from twice a week to Saturday mornings you know from grade three and teachers at school were very supportive and I actually got myself banned from team sport because at the age you know eight or nine I played to win and the school sat me down and said not all people like winning and obviously my face just showed that I had no idea what they're talking about so they just said to me just stick to athletics and cross country because you can only hurt yourself banned wow yeah so that was what I did. And then I said to the school, okay, because you, cause I took it on as an honour. The school had asked me to do this. I didn't realise the school was actually saying, you're such a pain in the neck, Emma. You need to go and do your own thing. Um, I said to the school, I'll make sure I'm never beaten. And I never was. But um, I always took it over the top seriously. So by the time you were 13, you set a state record, a Victorian record in, in your 3,000 metre debut. Do you, rem- do you remember the time? I'm testing you here. Uh, and does it, it stand? No, it, it didn't stand because um, some official had forgot to update it and I'd missed it by a second. Oh. But it was 10.28. I was, um, I think I was 12. So I all I'd wanted to do for these um, championships, and my dad always held me back. He'd never let me train properly because, you know, everyone at his office said, don't let your daughter train hard when she's younger. She's got to save it all and make sure her bones have developed and everything's okay and let her train when she gets to the, you know, late teens. So I, I'd nagged dad to enter the... Victorian school championships and I'd entered the 8 and the 1500 and both of them I finished fourth. so neither of them I got a medal and I said to dad oh I can't believe it and then the following week there was a 3k and I said to dad I can run that and dad said no it's too far you know you're only young and I said come on I do it in cross country anyway I managed to convince him the entries had closed dad managed to get Athletics Victoria to okay another entry and you know, got into the race I remember you know seven and a half laps so I'd done the first 200 I looked over at dad I was in the lead and I said to dad am I going the right pace and dad just yelled out I don't know and I just thought okay I'm on my own here and that was it just how I you like it and... just how you like it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was how it all started. Yeah, I mean, because you were a prodigy. I mean, you were one of the country's leading young distance athletes. So you won national school titles on the track. You represented the country in cross country, and it all appeared laid out. But you changed course. So there was a back injury that flared, and then I think you might have seen triathlon on TV. And it's 1991, Emma. Yeah, 91, the world's world champs for triathlon were on the Gold Coast, and Dad was watching them. And I asked him what he was watching. And we we're watching the women's race. And I, I thought they looked really rough. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't neat, tidy running. It was rough. I said, what, what is this? Because I thought maybe it was a um, heptathlon or something like that. You know, in the Olympics when you see mm. those guys running their 1500? Yeah. He said, that's a triathlon. I said, oh, what's that? And he said, swim, bike, run. And I said, oh, okay. And I said, the running doesn't look good. And Dad goes, no, I reckon you could outrun these girls. And he said, have you still got a bike? And I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure. So that must have just ticked over in Dad's head. It wasn't until a couple of years yeah. later when I got a few running injuries, Dad said, well, why don't you try doing a triathlon um and do you want to hear the whole story on that or yeah for sure yeah so um down at elwood there was a sprint race 750 meter swim 20k bike 5k run dad said go and enter it and i thought oh it can't be that hard i can swim and anyway it was horrendous 
the swim took me longer to swim than it should take to do it twice. Did I read um, that you were seven minutes down? <laughs> seven minutes down after this swim, which which how many was it? Seven hundred meters or something? Yeah. So basically, just shocking. I had no idea what I was doing. It was freezing cold, rough, kicked in the head. Anyway, got onto the bike, and then, you know, I'm used to running around in circles or marked courses. So I'm now riding my bike flat out just through waves of people. And I thought, how do I know when I'm winning? You know, because that was what I was obsessed with. So I just rode my bike flat out, just, you know, avoid crashes. And so you get get onto the run and I yelled out to dad, what am I coming? And dad goes, I don't know. So I'm like, oh. So every time I ran past a girl, I asked her if she was winning and it was no. Oh no. Okay. So ran to the next one. Hey, are you winning? No. Okay. So I made my way through the field finally got to a girl with about a K to go and I said, are you winning? She goes, yeah. And I said, oh, good. So I overtook her and won. <laughs> <laughs> good. And that was that was my intro to triathlon. Um, but yeah, Dad sort of looked at, in those days, had to buy magazines and looked at results, international results. He um, worked out if I learned to swim, I'd be the best triathlete in the world. Your dad actually told you, and just on this, so this, this is 18 months out from the World Championships in Wellington. So you've just done a sprint race at Elwood. And he's talking world champs in Wellington a year and a half away. Improve the swim, become a world champ. Easy. Yeah, well, Dad had, Dad had worked it all out. He said, look, he said, we've got to find you a swim coach. Absolutely no brainer. He said, your running is fine. He says, and I think you should still try and make world cross country teams. Um, he said, your bike is comparable. He said, so for some reason you can ride a bike without much training. So that was sort of, you know, we had to go and find swim coaches. Dad said, 18 months time, there's a world championship in New Zealand. He said, I reckon you could go there and win it. And like, we had to find swim coaches in Australia that took us seriously. Oh, can you teach us to swim? We need to win a world title in 18 months you know like bill sweetman laughed us off the pool deck <laughs> um <laughs> just so you know it was it was a crazy idea but at the same time it was a brilliant one because my sister was going to do the junior world so yeah as it turns out dad was right he, he did he did say it was right so november 94 over in new zealand your first international triathlon you go and become a world champion i mean can you remember yeah. the feeling yeah i remember like talking about visualising, the day before I wasn't invited to the press conference and I said to Dad, can you believe her? And Dad said, well, yeah, I can because you've never raced. And um, I said, well, it's pretty obvious I'm going to win. And Dad said, yeah, but people don't people don't see that, Emma. They just look at results and they look at past and, you know, you're a new face. It's, you're not, they don't think you're going to win. And I couldn't believe it. So, yeah, it was really obvious to me I was going to win, particularly when Claire won in the morning because I couldn't go home the family loser. <laughs> That's right. So you don't look back, unsurprisingly. 95, 96, 97, I think you go and you win all but three international races. So you are utterly dominant. The second world title on the streets of Perth in 97, a home crowd. I mean, was is that was that the pinnacle? Um, as it turned out, probably was for my career. I mean, the crowd, you know, Depends on where you read. It was between eighty to a hundred thousand. Um, Australia was absolutely dominating the sport. You know, to go in Perth on that weekend to go shopping and to go out, I always had to have someone with me, like a, a bodyguard, just because I couldn't get anything done. Um, it was it was huge, wow. really, really huge. That's yeah. amazing. What what was your just just on your strategy? I mean, what was it? Was it to have an explosive bike and run combo was swimming, did it live on as your weakest leg, even though you obviously improved it significantly? What was your strategy going in or just go hard all the time? So triathlon traditionally, countries that have done well have been from developed nations. And for some reason, so the swim is like 12% of, of the race in time and distance. 
and then you've got the bike, which is 50% in mm. time and distance, and then you've got the run, which is sort of another 30%. Um, not sure if that adds up to 100. But not they're, quite, they're but I'll get you used. <laughs> they're the rough figures. Yeah. Now, traditionally in Australia, um, they've been obsessed with getting swimmers that can run. And, and to, that, to Dad and I, that didn't make sense because you're getting the smallest proportion of the race. So why don't you minimise the damage in the swim, which is the smallest proportion, and maximise the damage in the bike and run, which mm. is, you know, I don't know, 80, 88% of the race. Yeah. And, it, and so, it, yeah, it worked. Yeah. And so that was, that was the goal. Um, but as I was developing my heart condition from 96 onwards, those sudden, because the triathlon starts very quickly. You, that first 200 metres in the swim, that makes you swim. So you've got to dive in and sprint. You've got to go. And that's the kind of stuff that sets off my arrhythmias, that sudden burst of energy. Yeah. Um, so it started to eat into that problem. Um, but, you know, I just put that down to poor swimming. I uh, didn't realise I was actually developing a heart condition. Yeah, it's amazing how steadily that happened over the course of, you know, eight years. Quite amazing yeah. until that, that fateful day in, in, in Canada. Um, just on the heart, though, at the peak of your powers, you mentioned the AIS testing. Did you ever get your VO2 max tested? I mean, Cadell <laughs> Evans famously has the AIS record, which I think is 87 mil per kilo. What, how did you go in the VO2 testing? Yeah, we did it. Um, I think it was at the VIS, and I, I remember my sister... Um, beat me and it was just a devastating time but we were in the 70s so I think it was something like I was 74 and she was 75 we were one apart right um, and you so took yeah, it, it and you took it well <laughs> um, just Claire beat me twice in her life and both times were devastating um, but the VO2 max because you know despite what they say you can't actually improve your VO2 max much you're actually set with that for life You've either got it or you don't. Right. Um, so I was like, oh, no, as, she age, as we age, she's going to start beating me. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> you're, listening, you're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. There's a bit more to come with Emma Carney right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. We've had the company today of Aussie triathlon legend Emma Carney. So, Emma, the Sydney Olympics for you, I guess like so many, were a huge goal. I mean, your world titles in the 90s, and then you hit a bit of a rough patch and you don't get picked for the Olympics. How do you, how do you look back on this time? Um, like all... Uh, 90s athletes, I think, um, block it out of your mind and carry on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never Did, deal with it. Yeah. Did you feel it's, cheated? Um, oh, yeah. I I have a real issue with talking about the Sydney Olympics. Um, I wrote about it, or well, I didn't actually write about it in my autobiography. I had a historian put together my appeal. I saw that, Because yeah. um, I think whatever whatever you say when you've missed out on something, people are going to think, oh, what a sour 
you know what or mm. you know she can't handle the truth so um i've left it in there for people to make up their own minds um according to the qualification criteria i qualified and you know they took an athlete that didn't race so you know it's it was a messy time. It was a horrible time. And I think that is why now today I can't stand athletes being ripped off. I cannot sit and watch it. And I'll always stand up for athletes and their rights and their um, their selection mishaps and making sure that selection is fair and transparent. Yeah, so your book, Hardwired, Life, Death and uh, Triathlon, documents all of that, and it is a compelling read. So that was some personal pain. That was some anguish. I'm, I'm delving here now, I guess, Emma, into, into even harder times, but and all that was serious, but nothing compared to, obviously, your sister Jane and, and what she would soon have to confront, I suppose. Yeah, Jane, um, my wonderful older sister, just shortly after I had my DFib um, put in, she was diagnosed with cancer and um, from diagnosis to death was five months mm. and um, she had a young baby and, you know, that was just just horrific. It's, uh, I didn't realise that cancer was as evil as it is and I didn't realise that the treatment is as shocking as it is and I didn't realise that you could just lose hope in most things watching yeah. that. And she'd already beaten back a melanoma, hadn't she, as well? Yeah, so it was skin cancer originally. Um, she had a melanoma removed from her neck in 96 and was given the all clear. She had found another one, a nodular type, in 2003. And um, Jane had her, her baby, a first child, in 2005. And what they think now is that while Jane was pregnant, the um, melanoma, they hadn't got the full... Uh, clearance of it and so it got into her bloodstream went around her system seeded itself on vital organs and you know once there was no real signs of anything until um, towards the end of her pregnancy she had a sore back Mm. and she had an abnormal blood test and that was put down to pregnancy Um, they were still there when the baby was born so you know Zoe was 10 days old and Jane was told that she needed to go and have some scans and she was just riddled with tumours. She had them on her liver, lungs, brain, chest, um, lymph nodes. It was everywhere. It was absolutely everywhere. And there was, you know, pretty much zero hope. Oh, it's so sad, isn't it? I mean, giving up wasn't something your family did. It's been a key theme of our chat, you know, today. And dying wasn't something your family did. But you, you must look back on it and think, you know, she, poor old Jane, she never had a chance. No, she didn't. She never had a chance. And um, I always thought that she was the nicest out of all of us as well. She was always the most forgiving. She was always always the most giving. You know, I was a sister that busted things and pushed too hard. She was a sister that put things back together. Um, She left behind a a wonderful little girl, Zoe, who just finished year 12. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Which, yeah. So, you know, life life does go on. but yeah, I miss my sister every day. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Your heart condition, um, as we said, affected you in your years post-career. You were told to never exercise again. You were fitted with a, a defib. Now, you weren't, this is unsurprising, but you didn't exactly play by the rules. You've had a crack at a few <laughs> things, Emma. I mean, the Melbourne to Warrnambool bike ride among them. And what <laughs> happened on that, please? 
Um, in Melbourne to Warrnambool, I actually, when Jane was sick, she, you know, said to me, go and spend time doing something you like, you know, a couple of afternoons and because um, her husband couldn't look after her the whole time. It was a full-time job. So I just got my bike out and started going for bike rides. And, of course, you know, if I needed to waste six hours, I'd ride to Portsea and back from St Kilda. Mm. Um, just get a 200 clicks in. And keeping the heart rate ticking over and it didn't set the defib off. And I got quite fit. So I thought, oh, I'll, <laughs> rather than waste this, I'll enter the Melbourne to Warrnambool. <laughs> 300k bike ride. <laughs> yeah. Why not? I thought, oh, that's, that's pretty sensible. Um, but what isn't sensible is the start of that race. For 300k, they start pretty busy, like it's hectic. So I was sort of sitting on the back trying to be sensible, but of course I was making efforts and then backing off, making efforts and backing off, making efforts and backing off. Then there was a crash and I had to make a big effort and I set my defib off. So that's, um, I had to go and see my cardiologist on the Monday. <laughs> yeah, and I reckon there's been a few other instances where the defib's gone off, let's be honest. We're talking amongst ourselves here. How many times have you set the old defib off? <laughs> well, the first one only lasted four years because you run the battery down. Right. Um, I'm on to my third one now, but every time I set it off, I ring my cardiologist. He's very kind to give me his mobile number. Um and he always says, what were you doing? And I say to him, I may have been in a competitive situation. You, so that's all he needs you, to know. <laughs> you are going to drive him absolutely bonkers, and we both know that. Um, you mentioned the scenes in Perth. Before we let you go, when you won the world title again for the second time and just how big the sport was, and I remember it in Australia at that time. It was huge. What is the yeah. state of the sport in now as someone who's still involved from a coaching point of view? Do you... Are you optimistic about it going forward? Are you worried about it? Where does it sit, do you think? It's not It's not in good shape. Um, it's not in good hands. It's It's uh, actually very sad. I, you know, I feel sorry for the athletes at the moment because the opportunities that I had, you know, 30 years ago aren't there anymore. And um, that's not right. The sport's, you know, getting $6.5 million of funding, which is far more than we ever had. And, um, you know, over 90% of that is going on administration and, um, you know, making sure officials get blazers to the Olympics. So it's it's not in a good way. But what is good is that Kieran Perkins is now heading up um, Sport Australia and he has some governance changes that are coming to our national sporting organisations. So hopefully places like Triathlon Australia will be cleaned out and cleaned up. Emma Carney, great to catch up with you. I mean, your ferocity for competition, your blatant refusal to accept anything other than first place were among the hallmarks of your very successful career. Certainly, as we've discussed, hasn't always been smooth sailing, but that's, you know, that's the warts and all reality of elite level sport. Well done on everything you've done. We appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Thanks for having me on. It's a great honour. And thank you for listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can jump online, find them, tobinbrothers.com.au, and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.